I'm Cassie Hilbron, and this is the Cook It Real Good podcast, bringing you shortcuts to success in the kitchen. This week's episode is going to teach you to cook like a pro. I chat with Jennifer Farley, the creator of Savory Simple, a blog dedicated to well-tested, reliable recipes and tutorials. Jennifer graduated from the culinary arts program, and I'm probably going to butcher this because it's French, but at l'Académie de Cuisine in 2010. And she has worked as a line cook, pastry chef, and cooking instructor. Before attending culinary school, she worked for 10 years at a photography studio where she acquired her first digital camera and learned how to edit images with Adobe Photoshop. Her cookbook, The Gourmet Kitchen, was published in 2015 by Simon & Schuster. She's written a weekly column for the Washington Post food section, and her work has been featured by a variety of online publications, including The Kitchen, Food 52, and eHow. She's also taught food photography workshops and classes and has spoken at several conferences, including Mediavine, Eat Right Retreat, and the Metropolitan Cooking and Entertaining Show. She works full-time as a food blogger in Washington, D.C., where she lives with her husband, Jeff, and her cat, Eleanor Rigby. Also cute. Jennifer shares some awesome techniques that every cook should know. You'll probably want to jot down a few ideas from this episode. So get your notepad handy or the notes app in your phone. This is going to be a good one. This week's recipe of the week is my Greek lemon potatoes. I made a bit of a Greek feast last week. And of course, lemon potatoes had to be on the menu. I forgot how unbelievably delicious they are. They're like little perfect flavor bombs and they complement chicken and lamb so well. Grab the recipe link as well as all the links we discuss in today's episode at cookitrealgood.com slash 33. Now, let's dive in. Hi, Jen. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so happy to have you here. Today's topic is one that I am so keen to get into. But before we do, can I ask you, what was your last cooking fail? Um, my last cooking fail was making dinner for me and Jeff, my husband. It was not complicated. It was pasta with sauteed vegetables. And, um, right as I was finishing up the dinner, I went to get a liquid measuring, uh, cup Pyrex for, to grab some of the pasta water. Um, cause sometimes that helps bring a pasta dish together and I managed to shatter it all over the entire <gasps> dinner. <No>. Right. <laughs> so that was fun and that we couldn't eat that. Oh, we no. had frozen pizza. <laughs> <laughs> That's horrible. Oh no. I'm very clumsy. <laughs> yes. I, a couple of weeks ago I was... I think I was just unpacking the dishwasher and like the stuff that was on the sink and I dropped the saucepan lid and it was the glass saucepan lid and it just shattered everywhere. (laughs) I'm like, no, I don't even think that's replaceable. I don't know if you can buy them separately. (laughs) No. Well, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, excuse me, maybe, but... (laughs) I'm clumsy with you. It's horrible. And there's nothing worse like when you've just made a full dinner, having that go down the drain. 
at least it wasn't like beef bourguignon or something that took hours to make. It was pasta. Yeah, 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 definitely. <laughs> and and you could recover with the frozen pizza, which was probably desirable anyway. <laughs> Always a winner. <laughs> All right. Well, today we're going to talk about how to cook like a chef at home. And I think this is going to be a real winner with my listeners because we just love any tips that will help us to cook better and more efficiently at home. And I think that's what we're going to cover off today. So let's start with talking about the five tastes that human tongue can detect. Sure. Um, they, there are five tastes and um, up until recently, um, not super recently, but th- there were only considered to be four and now there's five. And that is sweet, salty, bitter, acid or sour and umami. And when you um, learn to identify uh, a lot of different ingredients that uh, have these have these specific tastes, and they might not necessarily be super obvious, you can learn how to incorporate them into, you can learn how to balance a recipe and not be so dependent on following recipes. And you can also learn how to fix a dinner that tastes really bland. So it's a really powerful tool. Definitely. And so your mommy was the one that was added more recently, wasn't yes. it? Yes. Um, what do we describe that as? Because that can be like, a. It's. I think we understand what sweet is and what sour is and what bitter is, mm-hmm. but what what is a umami flavor? Umami is... Um, it's savoriness. It's the, it's, I think years ago, it might've, um, even if the term wasn't as, as known, it was um, a lot of times a dish that would have MSG in it would have that like extra savory, addictive quality to it. So some examples might be Parmesan cheese, really good Parmesan cheese or, um, roasted tomatoes or soy sauce. They just, uh, anytime you can incorporate something like that into a dish, it just, it makes it pop. Definitely. And what about how to, how do we learn to season to taste? So you kind of, um, struck a little bit that, you know, how to, you you can do, get this sort of sixth sense on tasting a dish and if it's bland, you can add things to it. So how do we really refine that skill and how do we know what to supplement if we taste something lacking in the dish? Yeah, it's, it's really about practice, knowing, um, taking some time to learn the different ingredients that will help balance and it, it can just be closing your eyes and seeing what pops the most. Um, and we all have a different the, part of the reason it's so important to learn how to season to taste, whether it's just salt and pepper. And people get angry a lot of times if I tell people to, in my recipes to season with salt and pepper to taste or, you know, adjust the seasonings if it, it at the end if needed is because we all have our own unique tastes. It's why um, one cake might taste incredibly cloying to one person and perfect to the next, or something might taste too salty, especially if someone has cut down on their their sodium intake. Um, they might suddenly find something that used to be their favorite salty snack to be ridiculously salty. So if if you're taking that and applying it to your own cooking, 
or your own baking. It's about um, figuring out what tastes too strong or maybe what's missing. And, and that really comes from practice. So I find that more often than not, if a dish tastes bland, it needs more salt or more acidity. So um, a lot of times a, a squeeze of lemon at the end will make a big difference or another pinch of salt. Even if you think that it has enough salt and you, or you followed the recipe exactly, it might just need a little bit of, of salt or maybe your equipment was different than the person making the recipe and it just, it didn't cleanse the flavor. Sometimes if I make a soup, I find that it tastes perfectly when it's done to me. And then the next day when I reheat it, it needs, it needs more salt or, or lemon juice it could, or, or a little bit of vinegar. Um, and, you know, I used to not understand why my salads were really boring <laughs> and I could never make them as good as, as some other people or restaurants. And it was really because salads are always a perfect example to me of they're a really simple way to practice balancing flavors. So I almost always want my greens to be arugula because you get this great uh, bitter taste. And if, if, if you're using something like spinach, you can add radishes or walnuts are a little bit bitter. Celery is a little bit bitter. You might not think about these being bitter, but but they are. And salty in any recipe doesn't have to just mean salt. It can mean soy sauce. It can mean a salty cheese like feta. Um, it can mean salted, roasted nuts. Um, and then sweetness, I think everyone knows sweetness, it could, but it doesn't just have to be sugar. In a salad, it might be berries or um, a vinaigrette that has some sweetness to it. So, you know, you just practice and you build from there and you learn what tastes off, what tastes what it needs more of. A salad is a great example of where to start sort of playing around with that because you're right, you can easily add and detract from it without having so sometimes like things like a soup or a a curry or something you've got lots of ingredients in the mix whereas a salad you can kind of build in basic things and and play around with what that what makes a difference and what doesn't um and I also like how you were saying about salt and pepper to taste like almost every recipe you ever read is always salt and pepper to taste (laughs) and I know that some people want like half a teaspoon or something but it's it's going to make a difference depending on your own taste. You're right. Cause some people might be like, I don't, I never have salt. Like for example, my husband, he very rarely salts his food, which I find very strange. Cause I'm like, put it all on. So <laughs> it, if I put too much salt in something, it is too much for him, but to me it's perfect. So it is all to your individual taste and you kind of have to do the balancing act with a bit of a taste at the end and see whether you like it and adjust accordingly. Right. And there's some things that you can't taste in advance. Um, my big example is always raw meat. You know, if you're going to sear a steak, it tastes so much better if the, if the salt and pepper are seared right into the crust, but, um, you just, that's one of those, that's an example where you just have to practice, um, and risk having a slightly too salty or not salty enough, um, seasoning level, because once eventually you just get a feeling for it and you're going to, what tastes perfect to me might taste too salty to your husband. Yes, definitely. 
Um, and that's a good example. Don't nobody try raw meat before you've cooked it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it doesn't really need to be said, but we'll just make sure. <laughs> right. Disclaimer. <laughs> All right. And what about glazing and deglazing? This is something that I'm really interested to learn more about. That is one of my favorite techniques uh, that I didn't have a clue about until I went to culinary school. We on the very first day of school, we learned how to make French onion soup because caramelized onions are an easy, perfect example of glazing and deglazing. If you, if you put onions, sliced onions in a saute pan, anything that's not nonstick, so stainless steel or aluminum, uh, things like that, you can start uh, letting a brown glaze form on the bottom of the pan. It's it's easier to do this if you don't touch them too much, you know, stir occasionally, but let them sit. And as water kind of seeps out of them and they, they stick to the bottom, this wonderful glaze forms. And it's also known uh, as fond. And you can let it you can let it darken and darken and really push it. You don't want it to burn, but you can let it get pretty dark brown. And then once you get to that point, you uh, you have some you keep some water nearby, and then you pour the water in the pan. It sizzles. All those that brown those brown bits that fawns loosen up from the pan, and then you take a a firm spatula and you just start scraping. And you scrape them back into the onions, and that's deglazing. And you just uh, you can use this technique for caramelizing onions, but you can also use it for building flavor in a soup before you start adding the liquid ingredients, or a stew, or chili. Um, I made a vegetarian chili a while back, and uh, I have a I have a vegan friend who said. She absolutely loved it. It was one of the richest chilies that she'd ever had. And, and really the secret was just really being patient and building up that glaze and going through that deglazing process. You know, you can do it, you can do it for five minutes, 10 minutes or 20 minutes, depending on how much time you want to put into it. But the more you glaze and deglaze, the more you build up that flavor. And part of the reason that we did French onion soup on the first day of school was because not only is that one of the most important techniques to get the hang of for restaurant quality food or, you know, even just home cooks, anyone. It also te teaches you about balancing flavor because when you first start caramelizing onions and they're just slightly golden and you taste some of them, they're going to be very, they're going to be very sweet. And then the longer you go, the more bitterness is going to be incorporated into that sweetness. And if you ever taste a French onion soup that tastes oddly sweet, and I've had this happen before, it means that the onions weren't caramelized enough because you have to, you have to practice caramelizing them until you get to that perfect balance of bitter and sweet. And then you add salty and you've got a wonderful flavor balance. And that's why good French onion soup is so good. And then you can apply this to, you can also make pan sauces with this, which are just, you know, anytime you sear a uh, steak or chicken or anything in a pan, those, you can let that 
that fawn's form on the bottom of the pan and then to glaze it, take the meat out and make this incredibly rich pan sauce that has that flavor built in from the glazing and deglazing. Yeah. <laughs> Just talking about this, I'm thinking about like <laughs> some of the most delicious like French onion soup. I think the the problem that we can have sometimes is the patience because you're right. It's um, especially when you think doing things like caramelizing onions, you can be like, ah, oh, this has been forever. That must be enough. But you're right. You've got to get to the exact right point before you give up and move on. <laughs> the, the trick that I add in with it that helps me. And I mean, this takes a little practice before people are comfortable with it, but learning to, to multitask a little bit, paying attention to how long it's taking between glazing and deglazing. And that's a great time to load up the dishwasher or start something that goes into the oven, you know, so you're not just standing there staring at onions for 25 minutes. <laughs> yes, that sounds like torture, actually. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Uh, and I, from what you've said, like I have done something like that with a stew where I've browned the meat first and then that gets kind of like stuck to the bottom as you're doing it and things like that. And then taking that away with a little bit of, of liquid and taking that out. And you're right. Those little bits just add so much f- flavor and it, it's something like that's so simple, but it makes a huge difference. Yeah. It's, it's um, umami. Actually, it's a great example of umami. Yes. Yes. All right. <laughs> all right. Now the next thing I want to ask you about is how, how to know which types of fats and oils to use when we're cooking and smoke points. Now I've had people talk to me about, um, olive oil and how it can be dangerous over certain, uh, certain points because it smokes and things like that. So I'm really excited to pick your brain here. Yeah, it's, it's, um, that's something that I wish I had learned a lot sooner. Um, This might have changed since then. I I would kind of hope so. But the first time that I ever tried to sear a steak, I was following instructions from uh, Mastering the Art of of French Cooking, uh, Julia Child. And it said to sear in butter. And in two seconds, my kitchen was a smoky mess. And I didn't realize um, probably because I wasn't reading the book from start to finish, and it can be helpful to read the intro, the intros at the beginning of the book. She was referring to clarified butter. Clarified butter is butter, but it has the milk solids removed, and so it has a much higher smoke point than unsalted or salted butter right out of your fridge. Um, you can get it much hotter before it starts smoking and burning. So a lot of times it's important to just have a sense of uh, what are some high smoke point oils. Usually you want something that's fairly neutral flavored, like you wouldn't want to sear meat in coconut oil. Um, There's there's some that there's some that uh, fats that have a that have a high smoke point and they pretty much taste like nothing. Um, Safflower oil, I think, is one of the highest smoke point oils. Um, I'm a big fan of using grapeseed oil. I buy a big thing of it from Costco. Um, and you can even you can even sear this grilling too. any um, any high heat method. You can uh, use regular olive oil because um, that has a higher smoke point than extra virgin olive oil. So um, there's a lot of different things you can use. And you actually can, um, I hear people say sometimes incorrectly that you can't fry things in olive oil. 
an extra virgin olive oil, but that's actually not true because most time when you're frying things, it's not going to the smoke point limit of the extra virgin olive oil. So um, there's a million charts online. I have one on my website and you can just, you can keep it bookmarked or you can print it out and then you just, you know exactly what you're using. Awesome. I'm going to link that in the show notes for sure. Um, and uh, but with what you said about the clarified butter, so that's also known as ghee, right? Yeah, there there's slight differences, but basically they're the same exact thing. You can either make your own or you can, a lot of times at the store they're sold is ghee. It tastes exactly the same. And um, the only place I think I've sold seen it sold is clarified butters, Trader Joe's. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. No, that makes sense. Um, yeah, we started cooking with it a few years ago. Um, and I, I love it. I love ghee. Um, and it doesn't, you're right about the butter. It just doesn't work the same. Those milk cells <laughs> do a lot of difference. Um, and the funny thing is, it's actually the best to make stove top popcorn with ghee, I found. Like, Ooh. it's so good. <laughs> I'm going to have to try that. Definitely. Even even when you, so like you cook it in it, but even to melt a little bit over, that tastes really good mm-hmm. too. <laughs> I bet. That sounds amazing. I know what I'm doing later. Yeah. May, everyone makes stuffed <laughs> popcorn with ghee or clarified butter, whichever one you want to call it. <laughs> you heard it here first. Yes, exactly. Now, homemade stocks. I have dabbled with my own types of homemade stocks, uh, but... You have a pretty good recipe for a homemade chicken stock, do you? Yeah, yeah. And I almost hate to call it a recipe um, because you can it's you can always be really flexible with homemade stock. I used to try to be really impressive and do this gigantic restaurant-sized pot at once, but I realized that was making my life so much more difficult than it needed to be. Um, but yeah, it's it's it makes things sold in um, boxes and cans at the grocery store are basically chicken broth. They don't usually have that thing that makes homemade stock taste uh, so much better in soups and sauces. And it, it's not even as much about a taste; it's about a, a texture. Because um, part of the reason that you want to make homemade stock with bones is because bones have collagen and that is actually what gelatin is made from and so it gives it gives sauces um this viscous quality that uh stick to things better and it's it's what restaurants use and it makes a huge difference and i actually now use an instapot more than not um it's one of the only things i use the instant pot for and it takes fraction of the time it's so easy i didn't realize that there was more to it than taste the difference so that's really good to know um Mm. i i like the using the instant pot as well i have i've well here in australia we don't call them instant pots we call them electric pressure cookers we just don't have the brand which is such a (laughs) bum but we i have one yeah exactly (laughs) i have i have one but i've never used it for chicken stock so i usually use a slow cooker i just like chuck in um, the leftovers from like a roast chicken at home and put in some um, like onions, celery, carrots, and like whatever, I guess, uh, vegetable scraps I've got left after dinner and those kind of things and just leave it on for eight hours. But I love that you can make it in the Instapot 
in a fraction of the time. That's awesome. Yeah, it works. It works great. And um, I know a lot of people that use leftover chicken bones um, from roast chicken or rotisserie chicken, and you make you can make a great stock from that. That's still so much better than what you're going to get from the grocery store. But one of the things I learned at school is that it's actually better if you use raw chicken bones because when they're raw, they um, they have a lot more collagen in them that hasn't already been cooked that will release into the stock. And certain parts of the chicken have more collagen than others. You can, you can use any part of the chicken, but a lot of times what I'll do is I'll buy um, a family-sized thing of chicken wings, which have a ton of collagen in them, and I'll just um, I'll fill up the bottom of the pot with them. And that makes incredible, incredible stock. But what a great idea. Fine if people want to use their bones. <laughs> their no, leftovers. What a great idea. I want to try it with raw chicken now. So just, yeah, chicken wings. Oh, what a clever idea. No, I never, never thought to use, I, like, I think I've thought to use like a whole raw chicken, but not the separate parts, which would obviously do the same thing. It's just something that never occurred to me. So I can't wait to try it. Yeah. Yeah. And then they're nice because they're small, so you can really sort of pack them into the bottom. Yeah. And that's get as awesome. much collagen in there as possible. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's such a good idea. Now, do you have any other tips for our home cooks on how to cook better? Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the two, the two, one, the two I can think of off the top of my head are, one of the things that you get from practicing is learning, sort of developing a muscle memory when you're in the kitchen. And it almost becomes like a dance. Um, you just you can sort of constantly anticipate what your next move is, what your end game is. Um, it's not just about mise en place. It's like about mise en process. <laughs> and it makes it, it makes things much more uh, it flows much better. I see a lot of times people are, um, they're preparing their, their dinner and suddenly dinners, the, the, the chicken is about to come out in one minute and the roasted vegetables are about to come out of the oven. And suddenly it's like, what do I need? What do I need? Um, so that's really a thing that just comes with, with practice. Um, so I think I always just recommend people practice, spend time in the kitchen. Don't be afraid to experiment and don't be afraid of making mistakes uh, because this is how we learn. I've been doing this for a long time and I still make mistakes and I know not to do them again. <laughs> and that's just, it becomes instinctual and you don't get that without practice and just going in there and being fearless. Definitely. Definitely. I love that advice. And I think that um, we can often, when we try and start something to so say, like, say you don't regularly cook anything outside of a regular meat and two veg or whatever it is. And you want to try and start experimenting a little bit more. One pick times when you're not in a rush, because I uh -huh. think that it makes a difference if you're able to oh, yeah. uh, take your time, especially if you're just starting out and playing around with things, make, give yourself some time. But also you don't have to do it every night of the week. Like just mm -hmm. start with one meal and work your way up from there. Absolutely. And have a have a backup plan. Like, you know, have that frozen pizza ready to go. If you're bringing something to a potluck, have a dish that you like at the grocery store that you can run and grab at the last second. So worst case scenario, 
you've wasted some ingredients. It's it's not the end of the world. And, and a lot of times you can still eat it. We eat a lot of my mistakes. <laughs> yes, 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 exactly. You just repurpose it in a different way and it works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome. Any other last minute tips? I think that pretty much covers it. You know, um, I don't want to get too repetitive, but, but, but practice, you know, if it's something that you want to get better at, take time to practice the same way you would practice any hobby. And if you really want, if you're a visual learner, see if there's some classes close to where you live, you know, you can go for an hour to learn basic knife skills or to learn, you know, a lot of different techniques that are interesting to you. And sometimes they even have kind of how to cook like a chef series where it's a, a, it's a little bit more money, but it's a five, you know, it's classes over three evenings or five evenings. And so you get a really live practice foundation for a lot of these things. And it's, it's less, you still have to practice, but it's a good, it's helpful. Yeah. Especially for visual learners and hands-on, that's really helpful. Now you have a email series that covers off some tips about how to cook like a chef at home. How would my listeners sign up for that? If you head over to my website, which is savorysimple.net, the .com will get you there too, but they usually tell people .net. Um, There is a pop-up for my email series. It is also at the bottom of every recipe post. If you have a pop-up blogger, which I would ask you to disable (laughs) when you're on my site, but you know, (laughs) that's the, the the pop-up's the fastest way to sign up for it. And then you can learn a lot of these techniques in more detail. That's awesome. And are you savory simple on socials too? And savory simple everywhere. (laughs) Awesome. Well, that's yeah. Instagram, Facebook, definitely look up Jen and I will put the link for the, or we'll put all the links that we discussed today, but I'll also make sure that I pop a link to um, the email sign up too. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Jen, for sharing those tips with us. My pleasure. This was fun. It was. All right. You have a good day. You too. I can't be the only one who feels ready to conquer the kitchen now that I've heard Jennifer's culinary techniques. Ultimately, the best way to become a pro in the kitchen is to practice, and every day we get a chance to do that, so just have a go. For all the links that we discussed in today's episode, head to cookitrealgood.com slash 33. That's it from me. Have a great week, and don't just cook, cook it real good. Bye.